scrutiny frameworks for Merrill combined authorities fit for purpose, and what difference will the new English devolution accountability framework make? Is the balance between local and combined authority accountability to national government and to local communities right for delivering local economic development effectively? Is local government held to different standards than national government by policymakers and the media? And if so, how will this affect the future of devolution in the UK? I'm Mike Spicer and you're listening to LED Confidential, the podcast that tries to lift the lid on those intractable and enduring challenges facing those of us working in and on local economic development and placemaking today. And I'm David Marlowe. Join us as we explore one of the trickiest agenda items currently facing local and combined authorities in England, and actually even the devolved nations, how to ensure accountability and transparency in the devolved state in the UK. David, I know that for many of our listeners who work in government organisations, it must feel like a big part of their jobs is to service the demands of scrutiny processes of one kind or another. But I also remember how the main argument made by government for abolishing RDAs and other regional bodies a decade ago, rather than simply slimming them down, was their lack of accountability to local communities. So accountability, or at least the perception of it, is clearly an important dimension to LED. But why focus on this particular topic today, David? Yeah, well, for me, it's certainly become more prominent as a topic within media coverage of local government and indeed in the devolved nations uh, with the controversies in Scotland at the moment. And these are making national waves. And I I wonder what this means for local economic development and placemakers in the short term and for big issues like the progress of devolution more enduringly. We have, for instance, the Gove Commission independent review into the Tees Valley Combined Authorities oversight of the South Tees Development Corporation and Tees Works joint venture. That's a mouthful if ever there was one. Yet at the same time, Tees Valley has been possibly the major recipient in funding and policy attention terms of government largesse to combined authorities and their poster child of governments levelling up in the north. Are these two things connected and do they raise wider questions? But to be perfectly honest, the major motivation for me in suggesting this episode is the availability of a superb guest who can really throw some light on the sort of questions we posed in our opening provocation. Professor John Tomney is Professor of Urban and Regional Planning in the Bartlett School of Planning, University College London. John is certainly a leading researcher and author on the development of cities and regions as socioeconomic, political and cultural phenomena and the role of public policy in the management of these. His work has focused especially on questions of the governance of local and regional economies and he is intimately familiar with Teesside and the North East. John has questioned publicly the targeting of government funding for political purposes in the Northeast and is well placed to put the issues this raises in a broader context. John, a huge, huge welcome to LEDC. What do you make of our provocations and where would you like us to focus the discussion over the next 40 minutes or so? Well, I think you have sketched out 
one of the most pressing agendas if we think about the whole field of local economic development uh, in the UK, uh, indeed, probably in other places as well. You know, th- there are two debates running in parallel here, one about levelling up, about what's the appropriate form of economic development policy to reduce regional inequalities uh, within the UK. And on the other hand, there's a debate about devolution. Uh, Those two debates have become increasingly intertwined. Devolution is seen as a precondition uh, for levelling up. And yet, lots of issues have got confused in all of that, I think. And I think probably we're approaching a moment when we need some careful evaluation of where we've got to in relation to achieving both of these objectives of levelling up uh, and and devolution. I suppose my interest, and if I've got any expertise, uh, it's lie in the English context. I certainly think there are issues to address in Scotland and Wales and uh, in London, um, but mainly I'm interested in developments outside of those uh, places. The broad swathe of English the governance of England, if you like, um, which you know is a huge part of the UK population, and which, in my view, needs much more attention than it's had from policymakers, uh, from uh, researchers, uh, and from the political and media class that are that are interested in these sorts of topics. So you you mentioned to, to begin with the government's new English devolution accountability framework, and I think that's. You know, very revealing document, really, in the sense that, you know, a lot of issues are thrown up by a, a, an examination of that. Of course, it's quite a thin document. It has to be said it's just a few pages long. And, you know, my reading of it is that it spends a lot more time on the question of how devolved governance arrangements are accountable to the national government than it does on how they're accountable to uh, local populations. I think that's uh, really revealing uh, in the sense that it has the stamp of Westminster and Whitehall all over it. I'm not, you know, there are some interesting bits in the white paper about the need for more integrated funding streams. You know, I think it's slightly astonishing that in, that we've only come to this conclusion in 2023 when people have been telling governments for decades about the importance of this. But there we are. We could call that progress. But the the rest of it is talk. You know, is talking about how these uh, these bodies will be accountable to central government for their uh, for their expenditure essentially the language of value for money um, is, is is crucial in all of that special arrangements made for uh, uh, to establish a business voice in these governments arrangements as if that's the only voice which should be uh, heard in all of this but I think the most revealing aspect of this document that you mentioned earlier, uh, or, or there are two very revealing aspects, I think. The first is the idea that in the future, combined authorities and, and mayoral combined, amazing in mayoral combined authorities will be in future elected by first past the post. Now, that's not really an effort to improve accountability at the local level. That's a kind of political gerrymandering exercise, which where, in fact, it has been introduced, it's backfired heavily on the government. Um, but the idea that you replace a proportional system with first past the post is designed to achieve short-term political advantages for the government, not to increase the accountability of devolved governance arrangements. And the second, I thought, quite interesting and revealing statement, in which is a throwaway remark almost in the document, but it's actually really, really crucial if you're thinking about accountability, scrutiny, um, and, and the democratic mandate of devolved bodies is we need a str- we need stronger local press scrutiny of what's happening uh, in, in in combined authorities. Now, 
you know that I agree with that. But what's said in the document about that is is you know is pretty worthless, really. So there you have a set of issues already, which to me at least reveal at the best you know really confused thinking in this area, and at worst political machinations designed for party advantage uh, rather than uh, for making these institutions truly accountable to the people that they serve. I, I was just going to say, I think it's a really interesting point about local press scrutiny, because I think if, if you were to ask sort of the average person on the street, how do they imagine that n- national politicians are held to account? the media would surely be up there as one of the the main channels to that scrutiny. And yet, as we know, with local government in all sorts of ways, that capacity for local scrutiny um, is different to what it is at a national level. There's been a kind of hollowing out of you know, read the regional press over the years, the rise of social media and kind of, you know, amateur sleuthery around, you know, holding um, organisations to account. But I, I, I was a bit mystified by that myself when I read the guidance um, just yesterday. And it made me wonder, what what is it that the authors of that document imagine is the barrier to that kind of scrutiny? Is it capacity, which surely has some role in it, or is there some kind of barrier in terms of transparency that needs to be addressed? Is it is it one or the other or both, do you think? I think it's both of those and other things as well, <laughs> is, would be my answer. I mean, the other things as well is, you know, when we're talking about devolution, you know, it's often presented as uh, an answer to the failures of our existing democratic system. But actually, it's caught up in the crisis of liberal democracy. The, it's caught up in the uh, growing apathy that citizens have towards uh, the ways they governed, their growing cynicism about how political power is exercised and who is really held to account and for what. Now, this this is a malaise that affects not just the UK, it affects most of the, the world's liberal democracies. Um, and it's most discussed at the national level. In one sense, of course, you know, Devolving power from Westminster and Whitehall to local communities is, has historically, over recent times, been presented as uh, a solution uh, to that broader crisis. But in reality, what it does is it replicates many of the problems that we have at the local scale. I mean, one very obvious example is looking at the way in which Scottish devolution has been caught up in a almost a kind of existential crisis uh, in recent times. And, and the crisis that's unfolded there is all is entirely one about accountability, transparency, and, and, and so on. It replicates the kinds of problems which we associate with uh, Westminster and Whitehall. So, this, the, so, so in relation to the two points that you made, in terms of capacity, the capacity of citizens, the capacity of the local media uh, in relation to holding... Uh, mayoral combined authorities to account in England is really, really weak. Um, so, for instance, you could you know, take the example of Teesside, which you mentioned uh, in your introduction. The example of Teesside, to me, reveals some of these problems in, in, in various ways. So what's happened over recent times is that the uh, conduct of the mayor and the mayor and the combined authority has been subject to a lot of media attention 
And, you know, to the extent that I've contributed to those debates, I've argued that what we're seeing here are failures in accountability and transparency. Huge decisions about large amounts of public money being taken in ways which are absolutely impenetrable to the local citizen. Huge swathes of public assets being transferred into private hands without even members of the combined authority knowing what was going on. And, you know, these are all matters of public record. They're not contentious. So in that kind of context, um, what you're seeing is hardly a, uh, an answer to the problems of democratic accountability, but another layering of, of those problems. And in that particular case, you know, the capacity of, of local actors to, to hold the decision makers in Teesside to account is, is very limited indeed. And then picking up on the point earlier about the media, you know, what's really interesting is that much of this, much of much of these failures of uh, scrutiny and accountability and transparency were happening in plain sight, but were not picked up by the local media. On the contrary, actually, um, you could argue that the local media was in some respects enabling these failures. Uh, it took the national media <laughs> to come in and and draw attention to what was going on. And much of this is so obscure that it's really beyond the the the, the attention. Of, of local voters. I mean, they, most of them uh, don't know, don't really know what's going on. They're now aware that there's some kind of scandal brewing. I use the term in inverted commas, but they don't really understand um, in any precise detail what's actually happening. Uh, and that's because of the complexity, the lack of scrutiny, the lack of transparency, the lack of, of accountability, I would argue. I agree with everything you've said so far, You know, including your critique of the um, devolution accountability framework. I mean, a few points that I wanted to throw into the mix, and it includes the the Teesside point. I mean, you're absolutely right that the devolution accountability framework, you know, A, is written by national government. It clearly has primary purposes in serving the interests of national government, albeit cloaked in stewardship of public money or, or national policy priorities or what, what have you. you know, is there scope for local places to put in place their own robust local accountability frameworks? And B, is there a pitch to be made about how this system evolves in the future? Yeah, in theory, I think there is a school for localities to put in uh, place their local accountability frameworks. But we also see examples at the local scale of precisely the problems that I've talked about at the, at the level of mayoral combined authorities. You know, for instance, you know, local authorities um, which have got into financial difficulties as a result of financial speculation in, in, in commercial property and so on, which we're reading about in the newspapers every day so what you've got is this, is is both at the combined authority level and the local level local authorities uh, or at least some of them anyway um seeing themselves as kind of players in uh, in the market for land and property rather than institutions which represent uh, the will of of local people so we you know local government is in this country is also in crisis you know not not just in the obvious sense that you know, it's been hollowed out. It's had its budgets reduced. Its its functions are shrinking down to a handful of activities, of which, of course, pl land use planning is one of the major ones and where it does still exercise important responsibility. But in that kind of context, 
there is really limited appetite, I would have thought, for local authorities to really think about how they make themselves more and, and, and um, better accountable um, to their to their local populations. You know, there will be examples around the country of local authorities which are doing this, but there are many, many examples of local authorities which resile from uh, local accountability or, or do it in very formulaic and, and, and limited ways, you know, we'll all, we'll all have experienced this as consumers of local services in our own communities where we're consulted by the local authority in the, in the classic tick box forms about, you know, traffic changes or changes to services and things like this. And, and that in that kind of context, the distance between the citizen and the, uh, and those who govern the citizens is widening all the time and the levels of cynicism are growing. Um, and I think that's a that's a major problem. So I don't think the, that any sector has the uh, has the answer here. You know, it's, it's not like local government is a paragon of virtue upon which we can build. This seem, this this sort of speaks to my suggestion that there's a there's a crisis of the system, um, and this idea that we can tinker with improvements at different bit with different bits of it, um, I, I think is increasingly difficult to sustain as, as, as a way forward. Now, on your second point, uh, David, about um, there may be a change of government and does that present an opportunity? I think that's more or less what you were uh, suggesting. Um, well, then I think, yes, you know, it does look increasingly likely that there will be a change of government, you know, and I look closely at what uh, the opposition, Labour in opposition, is saying about all of these things. And you know, do I believe that we're on the verge of a golden age of local government and devolution? Well, you know, um, I'm waiting to see, really. I mean, we're, we're a long way short of having a convincing account of what Labour will do in relation to all of these things, although lots of interesting and promising things have been said. I, I'm still, you know, I think we're all still waiting to see how this adds up. But what's really required, I think, is a new settlement between the local you know, local and central government um, at its various scales of the various scales of local government, in which instead of doing deals, you know, we have proper agreements that set out long term frameworks for the um, the evolution of, of relationships over the long run. Um, and that will include, you know, much greater commitments to um, systems founded on true scrutiny transparency and accountability, extending uh, accountability in, in new ways, perhaps looking at innovative ways of making decisions like citizens' juries and so on. I'm not saying that these kinds of things are panaceas, but I, but I, I think that there is certainly space to use them more, um, not just at the national level, but at, but at the local uh, scale too. Of course, they're resource intensive, and, and that's a you know, that's a challenge if you're going to use those kinds of uh, methods. But at the same time, I think we also need to recognise that this, that the relationship between the forms of devolution we've got and the approaches to levelling up that we're pursuing are actually quite closely related. Um, so if you go back to the original Osborne announcements on on devolution back in 2015-16 when they were doing the original deals with Manchester and so on. You know, what he was arguing was that he wanted someone locally who he could do a deal with. 
And to me, this is a problem which is at the heart of all of this, that local government is seen as an arena in which deals are done between the the local government and the private sector or between local government and central government. And that's diminishing the role of local government. It makes it subservient to these uh, commercial and and, and political priorities, uh, which are not determined locally. Uh, and I think that's some that that's a, a really big challenge to 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 readdress that. John, one one angle I wanted to explore was just the sort of uneven nature of devolution. We've got you know multiple; it, it, it's taking different forms in different places. So you know, we have city regions, some of which have the the MCA model. Um, we have county based forms of devolution now. So there's a bit of a hodgepodge, isn't there, out there of um, not just of uh, of local government uh, setups, but also of the ways in which they're held to account locally and nationally. Is there some? Is there a sense? Do you think that that has obscured the picture somewhat? That it's made it a lot more complicated to to really understand what we need our accountability frameworks to do. And, and do we need something a bit more consistent across the piece? Is that would that be a good outcome? Do you think? Well. To describe it as a bit of a hodgepodge is a bit of, a, a bit of an understatement, probably. I, I've I've said worse on this program, John. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> Have you? Okay. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. I, I. I mean, I think you're correct that you know some people would describe it as a mess. Really, I think for the citizen, it's extraordinarily difficult to understand. Uh, for the average person who's not spending their time like we are, worrying about this on a daily basis, you know, and. Big changes are being affected really in the way in which England is governed without really much engagement from citizens in, in all of this at all. I mean, I'll give you an example. The north of Tyne Combined Authority is extending its reach now to cover uh, the area south of the Tyne to the Tees. And this is all really being done in, in, in this kind of atmosphere of deals between local authorities in the northeast and, and central government without without most voters really even though it was going on, um, certainly not subject to any scrutiny, bits and pieces in the local press, um, but very little to explain to people, local voters, what's at stake in all of this. So for the citizen, I think this is all very obscure and difficult uh, to understand. It's often difficult to understand for the people working in it as well. And I have a lot of sympathy for those people who are trying to you know, affect change in local economies when all of this turbulence is is going on around them. Now, why have we got to this stage? Well, the advocates of this, whether it was in the government or, you know, some of the think tanks in London and all all this, you know, people like that were were arguing that what we needed to do was move at the pace of the quickest and not be held up by the slow coaches. And if we could move at the pace of the quickest, then we would see change and improvements and, and so forth and um, and that was the justification for doing this. And what you've let, what you're left with is, is this great asymmetry in devolution. And the claims always made now that I think it's 40% of the British population uh, are about to or already do live in uh, areas with combined authorities. But that's that's like you know that's gilding the lily, isn't it? Really, a little bit. It's um, you know it's it's trying to make improvements seem greater than they actually are. Because, I mean, the point is that 60% of people don't live in areas with devolved responsibilities. And at the moment, we don't we have no idea what the map will look like at the end of all of this. 
uh, and I think that's a problem. Now, one one th- you know one thing that I've consistently argued is that at some point we're going to have to just sit down and try and impose some order on this system. It's it's difficult for citizens to understand. It's difficult for actors at the local scale to engage with because it's so it's 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 it's, in, it's couched with uncertainty and. Uh, uh, all the time, we don't really know where we're going to end up with all of this, and I think it also imposes increasing strains in Whitehall. You know, conceivably, if if we continue in this direction, we're going to have, you know, dozens of um, uh, devolution deals, all different across the country, all moving at a different pace, um, and that pays, pl- places enormous strains on the Whitehall system. Uh, and one of the complaints you get at the local scale is that. Decisions are taking too long at the white it, 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 within Whitehall, and that's partly because of the nature of the process that we've created. It seems to me. Um, so, uh, at some point, we're going to have to impose some order on this. You know, there'll be those who will resist this because it's you know, it will impede momentum. But the costs of of this sort of slightly anarchic approach um, will soon outweigh the benefits. Uh, in in my view. Um, so, from my so my, my feeling is that there are costs accumulating as a result of the way we're doing things. We will need to import, impose some order, and when we do, that will need to be on the basis of an agreement between central and local, rather than something which the central government imposes on the local. In the long run, that's the only way uh, a, a devolved system of government can work. That's the lesson, really, from around the world. And, I mean, it does go back to almost my first point is, is there any chance that local can come up with the coherent frameworks to actually contribute to that agreement as, you know, if not equal partners, at least serious partners that do have some sort of levers, buttons, powers to compel government to come up with a settlement that does meet both national and local requirements? I don't know. It's a big challenge for local government um, to come up with, you know, the the approach that you're suggesting uh, there, David, because, you know, what we see in most cases, you know, around the country as devolution deals uh, come onto the political agenda locally, it becomes immediately a bun fight about who's, going to win and who's going to lose in all of this um some of these bun fights can be extraordinarily bitter um in, in some parts of the country you know i mean uh with districts and counties fighting against each other and bad mouthing each other and and and, and so on and then uh, you know so how do you get beyond that that's a really big challenge i think you know there are ways in which it could be done because central government could pr- um provide incentives of various kinds for local authorities to cooperate. But the system that we have at the moment is really one that promotes competition between uh, local authorities. Even at, the, even at the point when they're coming together to create combined authorities, it's usually lowest common denominator solutions to overcome patterns of local rivalry rather than a grand vision of what the future could look like, which is driving the, the devolution deals. You know, maybe that's a sign of the immaturity of this whole process, but it could also be a sign of something that's intrinsic to the whole thing, and that that proves very, very difficult uh, to get over. And I'm not saying that's the case; that's, it's the case everywhere that this happens, but it's the, it, it is the case 
in in many uh, you know many parts of the country. Clearly, in places like Manchester, you know, where the story is that everybody got together and agreed the way forward and so on, um, then you can make more progress. And that was the sort of that that was the idea that you liberate the people who wanted to move fastest to go fastest. But I think we're reaching we've reached the limits of that. Um, you know, my late colleague on the UK uh, 2070 Commission, Lord Kersdale, who died recently. Bob was a big believer that we'd gone as, you know, that, that this system, this way of doing things had run out of steam and uh, we had to move beyond that uh, and have some, you know, England-wide agreement on how we moved forward and uh, with some endpoints for devolution that we, that we knew that we could aim for rather than the, the current sort of system. Yeah, you've, I mean, Bob, uh, Lord Kerslake will be sorely missed. There's no doubt about that. He will. I, I think he was one of, he would be missed in lots of ways because uh, he was just a great man, but um, he'd be missed particularly on this topic because he saw things with such clarity and had such a vast amount of experience. Um, and in in the d- debate that we had in the UK 2070 Commission, he was absolutely adamant that, you know, this idea of, you know, going at the pace of the fastest and leaving everybody else behind was, was over uh, and that we needed a new approach. And I, I actually, you know, think it would be great if we had something like a UK 2070 prospectus that we all knew we were working towards. But isn't it inevitable that the solutions in London, Greater Manchester, and other great city regions it would be different to the solutions in um, more polycentric and urban rural areas and that is the sort of reality, isn't it? Yeah, despite despite the talk of deals and the impression that, you know, is conveyed that, you know, there's this tussle over trying to get some deal that fits the, you know, the specifics of your area. In reality, it's a one-size-fits-all model. There's a, there's a huge contradiction between this idea that uh, uh, we'll have a diverse range of devolution deals, but when you look at them, the range of difference within them is, is actually quite narrow. And I think we have to decide really whether we want a properly devolved England or whether we want these sort of uh, deals between uh, central government and local government, which give the impression of diversity, but in practice turn out to look very similar, um, you know, with one or two places pulling away. But in most cases, the range of powers available, the range of resources available at the uh, combined authority scale looking pretty similar and in and in many cases look combined authorities not even wanting the more difficult or contentious responsibilities like for instance spatial planning which is always a test as we've seen in manchester you know manchester has the has the power to create a spatial plan but it's been an enormous struggle and why is that for all the reasons we just discussed that local rivalries are very difficult um to trump particularly when it comes to things like you know issues like deleting the areas from the green belt and and things like that which really do get the ire of citizens uh, really do attract their attention in a way that local government often doesn't i i wonder if there's some sort of partly historic set of antecedents that we could sort of reinvent as part of this process towards you know moving forward much more consistently so if one goes back to the 
late noughties and early 2010s, there was a lot of enthusiasm for place-based budgeting. Uh, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the devolution accountability framework was when it listed the various funds that different combined authorities have access to. You're absolutely right, John. You know, they're, they're all important funds, but they're not absolutely massively transformational per se. And they are so far away from having a coherent place-based budget um, that you're, you really are sort of rowing uphill or whatever the metaphor is to try mm. and do better LED and placemaking for your area. Secondly, the accountability framework is pretty silent on fiscal devolution and it sort of pulls its punches on single base settlements saying, well, we'll sort of deal with these as we go along with um, mm. Greater Manchester and West Midlands to be the first uh, to do this. And so I sort of wonder whether there is mileage for some sort of UK 2070 process with some very strong bottom-up components, which might use some of those type of devices. Yeah, when you start talking about historical antecedents, I wondered how far you were going to go back, whether we were going to go back to the major generals in the Civil War or the... The Normans shiring the country and all this sort of thing. I, I, yeah. I, I thought you, I thought you were going to to, to invoke Redcliffe Moor, David, at one point. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, but to, I mean, I think you know, uh, certainly at the end of New Labour, there was this discussion about total place. The idea that we need to understand the full flows of resources going into a place in order to properly understand how that place develops, and in order then to make effective interventions public interventions in all of that and I think you know but before that back in the 19 uh, late 1970s partly in response to the Scottish um, devolution debate around that time the Labour government of uh, Wilson Callaghan set up uh, the Northern Region Strategy Team which uh, did a similar was trying to do a similar work uh, in for the north for what's then called the Northern Region the northeastern bits of Cumbria uh, and the idea was that we needed to understand in total how public expenditure worked uh, in these um, places if we were going to really design effective interventions to help their development. So these ideas have been around for quite a long time. They're recurring. And I've, I've seen these sorts of arguments picked up a bit recently. Organisations like New Local in London, uh, the, the think tank in London, have talked about this. And, you know, I think they're onto something. And I, I suspect that means that perhaps Labour and opposition is thinking about some of these things. You know, so I, there's obviously some sort of interest and movement uh, around, around this topic. I think it's extremely important. If you look even at local councils now, you see that, you know, the vast majority of their expenditure is on on, on, on matters like adult social care rather than on local economic development. So we need to understand how all of these things work, particularly in terms of labour market policy. Um, we need to understand how universal credit operates in, in local communities and how that has an impact on what you can and can't do in terms of local economic development. These are all really important issues. Um, and I think they've become very important when you think about these new ideas which are shaping a lot of thinking, particularly in places like Wales and, and, in, and in Greater Manchester now, 
uh, about local economic development, ideas like the foundational economy, which says we spend far too much time thinking about free ports and getting Saudi investments in wind farms and things. And really what we should be concentrating on is the foundational economy, the, 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 the bits of the economy that matter most to people in terms of the quality of everyday life. Um, and these do involve sectors like care, the provision of social infrastructure and, and so on. And these are massively neglected in the way we think about local economic development. So there's, there's definitely a space there which does need to be addressed. And I think we have lessons from the past to draw on. But unfortunately, the big lesson is every now and again, we think these things are important, have a look at them, and then nothing happens. On fiscal devolution, again, extremely important. Well-designed systems of uh, fiscal devolution in most countries are crucial to the operation of effective local and regional government. The amount of resource, you know, the, the UK, as we all know, I don't need to tell people who would listen to a podcast called LED Confidential. I don't need to tell them that we are the most highly have the most highly centralised territorial uh, fiscal system uh, in the OECD, bar Ireland. So, you know. How we, we, we certainly need to move forward on that. Is there any appetite? There's none at all, I think, in the current government. And so far, very little I would have thought, as far as I can see, from an incoming Labour government. And indeed, Rachel Reeves has ruled it out um, in, in comments she's made not, not that long ago. But I think if if a new if an incoming Labour government is serious about devolution, it's going to have to have something to say about fiscal devolution. And there are a number of ways in which you could at least give local government and, and combined authorities uh, a bit more access to their autom- to autonomous resources, which would allow them to be flexible and innovative in a way that uh, isn't possible at the moment. And I know that there's thinking going on uh, around those sorts of issues in relation to what an incoming Labour government might do, but what actually tr- translates into a manifesto and then into a programme for government, uh, it remains very much to be seen, I think. I, I, I do wonder as well, John, to what extent the debate about whether you kind of impose some sort of top-down order on devolution and all of the accountability frameworks that go with it and fiscal devolution are linked in some way. Because if you think about one of the obvious thing, one of the kind of potentially the most well, there's nothing straightforward about fiscal devolution, but one of one of the ways it one of the forms it could take would be to allow places to maintain or, or, or to keep a share of the corporation tax revenue that's generated in their area. It could be a, a small percentage, a larger one. Um, but, you know, it's hard to see how you could implement something like that, except on a national basis, just because of the you know, differences in you know, the, the, the lumpiness of that tax and how it's generated. And you'd need to have some kind of redistribution perhaps on top of that uh, in, in much the same way that business rates retention has worked through a top-up and levy system. So I just wonder whether, you know, is there, a, is there a potential tension here between going faster on devolution by uh, essentially having some kind of competitive nature baked in because you've got places going further and faster than others and perhaps that you know makes it easier for other areas to um to feel like they can overcome local um, political barriers or actually is it being held back because as i think as 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 the late lord kerslake probably believed uh, based on his statements that actually some of the next steps on devolution they have to be done on a more 
rational national basis? I think any any system of fiscal devolution must have within it mechanisms for territorial equalization. I mean, that's devolved. You know, f- fiscal devolution works where that where that exists. You know, so the obvious examples are places like. So the obvious examples are places like Australia uh, through the Commonwealth Grants Commission and in Germany through the financial equalization mechanism that's actually you know established in the constitution as a as a key feature of the way in which german federalism works and what you have to some extent in 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 places like germany maybe less so in australia for different reasons you have systems of what you might call cooperative devolution cooperative federalism the, the antithesis would be the united states where everything's about competition and um and a kind of cooperative and zero sum sort of devolution if you like um, or federal system one of the problems is is if that you have this if you have big asymmetries in devolution it makes establishing fiscal equalization mechanisms more difficult intrinsically more difficult um, if there are some asymmetries in the german system between the different lender but basically they they contain within reasonable limits so you can have very effective forms of uh, fiscal equalization and the most obvious example of that was the massive resources which were transferred to the new lender after 1991 in Germany so these are all things that need to be thought out because the central the central problem in places like, like let's say Tees Valley which we were talking about earlier on the central problem that Tees Valley has uh, and this is a problem which undermines un- undermines efforts to create systems of local autonomy there is that there's no money in uh, the Tees Valley. It's a poor place. It's one of the poorest places in Western Europe. It's poorer now than many places in Central and Eastern Europe. So it can't help itself in that sense. It needs it needs the help of the UK state, but that help has got to come has got to come in the form of programs of spending rather than deals and funds and competition between places for resources. It needs a, a program of funding which reflects the real needs. Uh, of those places, and I think, you know, you know, this is not news. Like the Northern Region Strategy Team was saying this in the 1970s, but we haven't made much in the way of progress towards solving this problem. It's great that we got back to Tees Valley in the end. So it did almost go uh, round in a circle. But I mean, as ever with some of these issues, John, I mean, it's been fabulous chatting with you. And we've only really scratched the surface of a number of topics coming you know, from the starting point of accountability frameworks. I think when we reflect on this episode, there are the embryos of an agenda for an incoming government and local leadership teams to discuss. Um, and I actually do think that there are areas that we could make progress on revisiting total place, fiscal devolution. I mean, we know that we've got to have a revision of the Barnet formula at some stage. Why not have more single settlements and formula-based issues in the governance of England as well. So masses amount to come back to. Mike, do you have any last words before we uh, we wind it up? Fascinating conversation. Thanks, John, for, for coming on the show. Um, it's touched on some of our favourite and recurring themes around 
uh, devolution um, and also the possibilities of changes to funding arrangements and fiscal devolution. And I feel like it's it's becoming something of a kind of, if, if there were a manifesto for LED uh, confidential, it would certainly have some of the elements from this episode in it, I, I'm sure. Um, but thanks from me, John. And as David says, it's uh, this is we've come to the end of the show, um, so we'll wrap it up there. Um, as ever, um, you can um, access this and other episodes from the LED Confidential website. It's ledconfidential.co.uk. Drop us a message. Tell us what you think. Ideas for future episodes, all welcome. Please do join the conversation. And we really look forward to your company on the next episode. Yeah.